Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Father God, we thank you for uh, your love for us, and we thank you that we can uh, always run to you for help. And uh, we just pray with uh, all the requests and the needs and the health concerns uh, that you would help us to focus our eyes on you and uh, not to give in to a spirit of fear, uh, but to to trust uh, the security we have in you and to uh, trust your plan for our lives. And uh, we just ask for your help as we read your word, uh, that it would be clear and that we would obey you and uh, follow after your uh, good plan um, in your word as you help us. Uh, We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I think uh, we're all familiar with the background material. So Colossians was written to address some of the problems going on in uh, Colossae, in the church in Colossae. And people were getting off track of focusing on Christ and continuing with him as the one who saved them. And We've learned that instead of going off to other things, we need to uh, pursue our spirituality through the person of Jesus. So our theme verses became Colossians 2, 9, and 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And so we've seen how the beginning of when we are thinking correctly about who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and who we are in him, we're able to uh, live life in Christ, uh, to let him be preeminent in our Christian living. So this week's text gets very practical. It addresses relationships in the home and relationships in the workforce or in Paul's day in slavery, in masters and slaves. So we'll look into that in a minute. What will be really helpful to us in thinking through some of these uh, ordained roles uh, within the home and within uh, the world is to think about authority. So here's a little uh, question for us to to think about this. Um, So who has final authority over a child, the parents or the state? (laughs) Linda's on to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so we want to say the parents, right? Uh, The Bible has placed parents as the authority over children. So I would agree with you. But then we would say, well, what if a parent is beating their child? Shouldn't the state, don't they have the right to step in and remove that child from an abusive situation? So yes, that's also true. So God gave governments authority to protect Uh, citizens from citizens, so in this case, a child from an abusive parent. Uh, But what if the state says you can't teach Christianity to your child, or you have to affirm whatever they decide they are, uh, is where we're kind of at right now, where a parent is required to, you know, say their child is a cat if they think they're a cat, or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, And we would say, well, that's the government... Uh, overstepping their bounds into an area they don't have authority to do that. 
So within your uh, notes is a handout. So I want to talk through that handout before we get into uh, discussing uh, the text tonight. So there's kind of two things that I want to overshadow our study of the Scripture tonight. One is God's design of authority, and then God's uh, appeal to other authorities when an authority is being abusive and stepping outside of uh, their boundaries. So that, that idea is going to be in our mind. And then also what we studied in chapters 1 and 2 about who we are in Jesus and how we can uh, suffer and keep our eyes focused on Jesus. So we're going to keep uh, who we are in Jesus on our minds and what God's designed for authority and kind of a, a broad theme of authority as we work through the verses tonight. So if you have that handout, uh, we'll start at the top. All human, authority, all human authority is to some measure relative, as is our obligation to obey. Submitting to God-given authorities should be our normative reflex, but there are no final authorities on earth. God is always and only our final authority. So God outlines authority structures in the home, in the church, uh, in the world, and under normal circumstances, we, we should obey those as we obey God. It's when uh, they overstep their boundaries of what God has allowed for them uh, that we are permitted then to seek counsel and see what God uh, would, li would like us to do in that situation. So something that's helpful is we think about the word authority, and that comes from uh, the word author. So God is the author of everything, and so he's able to give out responsibility to certain individuals. And so all authority is derived authority from God's authority. So no human has authority in and of themselves. It's something that God gifts to them and is not something that we acquire of our own doing or, or things like that. So God, we're, we're going to think about it in terms of offices. So we don't usually talk about that. We usually say like, you know, you're, you're a, you have the role of father or you have the role of wife. Um, but if we think about it in terms of office, it connects a little bit more with the idea of authority. So with each office that God has ordained in communities, uh, there's an authority that comes with that and a responsibility before God as the author of everything. So uh, going back to our paragraph, God is the only final authority. So we, we always go to him first uh, and last um, about things. And we'll see in our text that that's what Paul does too, is he, he keeps pointing back to do this for Jesus, um, not because the person necessarily deserves it. So because God is the only final authority, there are limits on human authorities. So that's this next thing, limits to God-given authorities. So when would, uh, or, or at what point would a human authority step out of bounds of what God has allowed for them? So number one, when authority requires sin. So if, you know, you have a boss or, or whoever, you know, a parent uh, who uh, commands you to sin, you can say no. We know that God 
uh, that they've stepped outside of the boundary of the authority that God has given them, and uh, we don't have to follow that. Number two, when an authority drives outside, it's God-assigned lanes. So there, there's different communities. So, um, you know, you think about different roles. So, like, uh, a parent could require something of a child, of their child, that the government couldn't, even though the government has some influence and authority over a child as their citizen, it's, they have different boundaries of what they're doing and trying to accomplish under God's authority. Does that make sense? So uh, each role has their own lane of what they can do that's potentially different from a different office. So uh, for an example, uh, so let's say... So, so I'm a pastor, so I ask a child to do something uh, that only a parent should ask their child to do. Okay, I don't know what it is. Wash the dishes. Who knows? Uh, as a silly one. I don't, I don't have the parental authority to give someone else's child chores like they would. I mean, maybe I would as a pastor, but you understand what I'm saying. There's, there's boundaries to each uh, set authority. Uh, number three. When protecting oneself from wrongful harm. So, uh, in an abusive situation, that would uh, exclude or someone would be outside of the bounds of their, uh, their authority. So, most likely, and I think we all are, uh, in some role of authority. So, maybe, you know, in a, in a church we have authority in each other's lives as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, you know, maybe you're a parent, maybe you're uh, a spouse, maybe you're, um, you know, an employer, a teacher, whatever it might be. Uh, here's five principles of good authority. So if you're thinking about how should I be exercising my authority as a parent or whatever it might be, here's uh, five things to think through. So number one, Good authority is not unaccountable, but submits to a higher authority. So a good parent won't parent because the child must obey me as their authority. They'll parent because the child needs to obey God, is the idea. So a good authority is someone who keeps themselves accountable to God's authority over them. They, they're not authority in and of themselves. They recognize uh, what's beyond them. Uh, and this, number one here, is really what our text will zoom in on, is uh, that we're all accountable under our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, he's the one to whom we will give an account. Number two, good authority doesn't steal life, but creates it. Instead of using others to serve himself, a good authority uses his own abilities to help others. So we see this one all the time, where someone in authority uses someone to get something for themselves instead of uh, using their authority to help that person and bless them and encourage them in their own walk with the Lord and to help them flourish. So it's not, good authority is not selfish. It doesn't uh, use people for uh, the sake of themselves. Number three, it is not unteachable but seeks wisdom. So bad authority will kind of set themselves up proudly and not be someone who can learn and be approachable 
and change. Number four, it is neither permissive nor authoritarian, but it ministers discipline. So this one's, you know, a classic uh, parent thing that's, that's hard to work through. Where's the balance between you need to obey me all the time versus not obeying at all uh, versus kind of the middle ground of like, let's follow Jesus together and this is what he wants us to do. And so that that's, uh, can be tricky to figure out in real life. Uh, and we'll talk more about that when we get to the parenting section. Uh, number five, it is not self-protective, but bears the cost. It's sacrificial. So this one comes up for husbands as they lead their wives. They're to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So good authority is a sacrificial where I am willing to sacrifice what's rightfully mine to help others um, in whatever area that might look like. So for Jesus with the church, it was to give up his own life to save the church. So that's the mirror image of a husband. He's to uh, love his wife as he loves his own body. And it's this sacrificial kind of love where he's not thinking about how can she please me, help me, but how can I help her follow Christ uh, using my authority well in that way. So those are five uh, principles of good authority. So in a fallen world, we can easily find ourselves under bad authority and abusive authority. So here are seven things to think through when you're working through uh, what to do with a potentially bad or abusive authority over you. So number one, keep your eyes fixed on the day of judgment. God will right all wrongs. So this is super important and this helps in lots of areas of lives in our, of our lives because we won't see perfect justice happen in our lifetime. Jesus will come back and make all things right, but uh, it won't all be fixed in this life, so we will deal with bad authority and abusive authority potentially in our lives. So the first thing to do is to keep your eyes fixed on the day of judgment. Number two, study scripture. So our acts will be judged according to God's word at the judgment seat of Christ. So that's just a wisdom thing of, do I know what God requires of me in this situation? And we'll talk about in a minute. Is this something that God wants me to stay in or to get out of? And a lot of that is a wisdom and seeking counseling issue. Uh, number three and four kind of go together. Mind your conscience and inform your conscience. So when an authority asks you to do something and our normal uh, reflex should be to submit to the authority that God has given us. Times when we don't do that is when it's obviously sin. We, we know, like, we think of a verse, like, God says, don't do that. There's times when uh, our consciences will say, that doesn't seem right, or that, that, that there's something wrong with this, and you kind of get, like, this fishy feeling. Um, so consciences are a gift from God, and they can be wrong. Our consciences are informed uh, by how we train them. So someone can have a wounded or marred conscience based on basically what we intake. So our consciences are always being informed by what we permit with our minds. So let's say we watch a lot of TV. 
that's going to knock down the walls of our conscience because we're letting the world's standards and motives and all that uh, come in. And it's, like, it's almost like a subconscious thing that's always there and we're training it by what we do. So that's where we need to inform our conscience correctly. So our consciences need to be informed according to what God's word says and what good counsel is and wisdom, not just, you know, whatever might be on our mind at the time. So that's something that we could be wrong about, that seeking counsel will help clarify if uh, that's something we need to change according to God's word or continue with. Uh, we should never, one other thing is, you should never sin against your conscience. If your conscience says don't do something, then don't do it until you retrain your conscience. So it's something that uh, Paul talks about how we can sin against our conscience and have an unclear conscience because we're doing something and our conscience is condemning us for it. We need to listen to that. And that's another thing. You can kind of break it down by continuing not to listen to it is you'll, you'll stop hearing it even. So listen to your conscience and make sure it's uh, informed correctly. Number five, seek counsel of your pastors and fellow church members. Uh, that's a huge one. You know, when we're in a situation where we don't, you know, we think something's happening and we're just not sure, sometimes it just helps to have someone who's not in the middle of it with their brain full of it to have their perspective and to obviously uh, seek their counsel from the word as well. Uh, number six, ask the Lord for wisdom. James 1, uh, the Lord promises that if we ask for wisdom, he will give it. And then number seven, address the person in authority directly or work to see that that authority is removed from being over you. So obviously in cases of physical abuse and that type of thing, uh, this wouldn't be a good idea. And you'd want to seek counsel on how to move forward with number seven if that's something uh, you're in. Uh, and then the last one is advice for when you are stuck under bad authority. So stuck can mean whatever you want it to mean. The idea is uh, it's not as easy as quitting a job or, or maybe that's hard because you wouldn't be able to provide for your family anymore. Um, the idea is you, you feel like you can't get out and you're kind of stuck there. So uh, here's three things to think through. Ask God to change the heart of the leader. So God is able to do this. Um, it's uh, often, un, you know, this isn't, isn't something we want to hope in. We want to hope in the Lord. Um, but sometimes people change as God uh, works in their lives. Question two, or number two, ask God to change your circumstances. Again, uh, this God does do that, but it's not what we want to hope in. We want to hope in the Lord. And that's where uh, number three comes in. So, or if you're stuck in the situation, ask God to do what he so commonly does in our trials, make you look more and more like Jesus who suffered and was then exalted. So Philippians 2 is really helpful with that. 1 Peter 2 is helpful as well because it actually walks through some of the, the family relationships and especially the slavery. And it talks about uh, slaves submitting themselves in verse 23 to harsh treatment to grief, to suffering wrongly. And then uh, later on, it talks about Jesus and how we can be like him when he committed himself to the one who judges righteously. 
So Jesus was willing to suffer wrong uh, because he had his eyes focused on God who judges righteously. So that doesn't mean that we stay in abusive situations, um, but it is an option if you feel stuck. So uh, if you have any questions about any of that, uh, feel free to let me know, and I would love to talk about it. So these come from this book by Jonathan Lehman, Authority, and it's really big. He's good at writing a big book, and then a smaller one, and then an even smaller one. So I'd encourage you to wait for one of those. But, <laughs> but it's somewhat helpful. Yeah, Dale. Does he at any, word, any point address appealing to an authority? Yeah. That's the thing I don't see in this list. Right, and yeah. An important component because it's easy to make a judgment about somebody that's ill-informed. Right. I don't see a provision for responding correctly to authority. Right. No, that's a good question. I, don't, I didn't read every word. Okay. I've read most of it. And I don't remember him having an outline like this for appealing. But we'll talk about that, especially with uh, children and their parents and you know, some of the other authority structures. Authority. Right, right. That's the proper channel for... Uh, when either you don't understand what's being asked of you by an authority or you think they're wrong, <laughs> is, is to appeal, especially with Scripture. The reason I raise because um, yeah. it says, number seven said, address the person. Sure. And that, that right. brings a judgmental tone. Right. Like you've made a decision, this person is wrong, which is not the right way to approach right. the person in authority. Yep, no, that's really good. Yeah, and that's, that's what we've tried to do with our kids is we're, you know, we're trying to ride that line between <laughs> uh, permissiveness and uh, authoritarian. Is that the ones he used? And so children love to whine and complain. And so we'll say, I'm sorry, I can't hear whining and complaining but you're welcome to appeal. <laughs> and we've done it enough that they kind of get that now, that, that they realize, so, so we've refused to change our minds based on their whining. So like, no matter even if we're wrong, like, nope, not, not from whining. So if they, if they appeal, uh, which is really funny hearing a three-year-old say, you know, mom, can I appeal? Uh, <laughs> but, but they understand it, kind of. Uh, usually, our, our three-year-old just asks the same question again that we just said no to, uh, but the five-year-old kind of gets that, you know, you're supposed to add more information that maybe we misunderstood what they were asking or, or something like that. So, uh, yeah, that's the proper way to do it is to appeal and uh, to work through the channels like that. Uh, three other components that he outlines in there that are really helpful for thinking through authority is there's different kinds of authority. So there's authority of command and authority of counsel. So the distinction he draws is if uh, God has given a tool or instrument of discipline to the authority, then it is an authority of command. So the state has the sword, or government has the sword, parents have the rod things like that. Uh, husbands uh, don't have a God-given tool of, uh, of discipline. So they're a, they're a command or they're a authority of counsel. So a husband makes 
uh, leadership decisions or appeals according to uh, good counsel and God's word and not, uh, yeah, there, there is no device given in scripture like there are with other things for, for husbands to lead. So with all of these, but I would say especially, uh, I think Paul points out with wives, is uh, the, the discipline is from the Lord. So there is a discipline, but the husband does not wield it. The Lord is the disciplinary committee, so to speak. So in verse 18, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And I think there's, uh, obviously all of these as believers uh, were morally obliged to obey the authority God has put over us. And it's sinful not to when being asked to within the bounds of correct authority, um, and we will answer for disobedience and non-submission to God-given authorities at the judgment seat of Christ. So we will be held accountable for both the authorities, how they lead, and the uh, ones under the authority, how they, how they follow that authority. So there's a weight to it, a heavy weight to all of it, but both with pastors and with um, Husbands, there's no instrument of discipline. It's the Lord. And, but we're still morally obliged to follow both. So the other authority that he brings up is the congregation. Uh, so they do have a tool of discipline. They have church discipline, uh, where membership can be removed uh, when someone who previously confessed to be a believer refuses to repent of their sin. Uh, any questions or thoughts on that handout or any of that? Further ideas? Yeah, Linda. There's a lot to think about with the stories of uh, Abraham and Sarah. Mm-hmm. Because she did obey him, and she's our example in First Peter 3. And God disciplined Abraham. Right. Right, but I think, or it doesn't say this, but... Uh, yeah, it's, that's one where it's complicated because would she have also been held as an example if she said, no, Abraham? Uh, are you talking about, does that talk about when she has... In Genesis 12 and in Genesis 20, he puts her in her harem. Once with Pharaoh, sure. once with Abimelech. Right, right, right. Both times. The first time she doesn't say anything, he says it for her. The second time, she does say it. Right. That, she's, that he's her brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it's complex. <laughs> and that's why I believe that she was, she's our example in First Peter 3, because um, right. she did do what God wanted her to do, and she was protected because she did what God, she trusted in God, is what we hear in First Peter 3. Right. She trusted in God. Yep. Yeah, and that's the example that it gives there of Jesus, too. You know, he committed himself to the one who judges righteously and yeah I uh, I'm all for protecting innocent people who are being abused um, but there's an option given in scripture to suffer for the Lord so it's complex <laughs> good so that's kind of the first uh, I don't know, cloud that we want weighing over us as we read through the text. The other one 
is what we read about in Colossians 2 with who we are in Christ. And so, or at the end of chapter 1, 2, as well. So, I'd encourage you to read over those as well, because the tenor of the book is, Jesus has done all this for us. We, you know, we owe everything to him, because he's given everything for us, and we are complete in him. So now we can step forward and really uh, show the beauty of who God is in the gospel in our human relationships. So, in Colossians, it points a lot to in the Lord and as is pleasing to the Lord. We get more of the gospel pictured in relationships in Ephesians, where it talks about husbands uh, loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So, that's one of the heavy things, uh, especially of being a husband, is a husband becomes the closest picture uh, physically to a woman of what Jesus is like. That's the responsibility of husbanding, is we're responsible to picture Christ's love for the church. And that's a scary thing, (laughs) because we're human and flawed. And so that's where we we repent and trust the Lord when we fail, and uh, confess our sins to our wives as we seek to love them well. So those two things, God's plan for authority, and uh, Jesus laying down his life Uh, for us to be saved and to picture the gospel in our relationships uh, is going to help us as we work through this. So, uh, in these verses, we're taught to make Jesus supreme by submitting to him. So, as we work through these, it's, it's hard to think about submitting to flawed humans. But Paul's encouragement is to look past the person and see the authority that God has given that person over you, and to respect his authority. Uh, So yeah, it might be helpful for you to think in terms of office for these instead of roles. So like the role of husband and wife versus the office of husband and wife. Because in this text, it's talking about uh, how we function in relation to each other uh, with authority. So we talk about political offices, church offices, and those have to do with authority. Um, and these are things that God uh, more points, but if it's not helpful to you, then, then you can ignore that idea of office. So first, how do we make Jesus supreme by submitting to him? We make Jesus supreme in our home. And then we do that by honoring him in our marriage. So look at Colossians three eighteen and 19 with me. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. So unlike Ephesians, uh, Paul keeps it pretty short here. So what we might uh, define the office of wife as is to lovingly submit to her husband in the pursuit of oneness for the sake of the name of Jesus. So the ideas wrapped up in that is that a wife chooses to lovingly submit to her husband uh, because God's design for uh, marriage is that the two become one flesh. And so that's something that that happens in marriage, and it's also something that needs to be worked on uh, as they move forward in the relationship. 
And notice how Paul points out, as is fitting in the Lord. So, marriage is, is bigger than you or I, or, or your husband, or your wife, and you. Uh, it's, it has to do with the Lord and honoring Him. So, uh, I've heard it said, you know, we, we don't just want good marriages. Unbelievers can have good marriages. We want godly marriages. We want Christ-filled marriages. So, uh, a good marriage or a good relationship with whoever isn't the goal. We want a, a relationship that is centered on Christ. Uh, we do it for Him. We do it to love Him. And we do it to honor Him. So, as we work through uh, the words in here, the next word is submit. So, wives, submit to your own husbands. So the sense of this word is to place uh, one person under another person. Uh, it has to do with uh, headship and leadership. It doesn't have to do with equality. So uh, in this, uh, wives and husbands have the opportunity to even imitate the Godhead and the way they relate to each other. So all three members of the Trinity are fully God. They're completely equal. They all have the same rights and privileges and attributes, um, all those things, uh, yet they choose within themselves to submit to one another. So there is a hierarchy that they voluntarily put themselves to. So this is similar to, uh, uh, similar to marriage between the husband and the wife. The wife voluntarily submits under the leadership and authority of the husband in the home. Um, so the emphasis is not necessarily uh, obeying specific commands, but rather that the, uh, that the husband is the head leading the home and the wife is to follow and support that leadership. So again, this isn't a command or a authority of command where the husband is a general um, or you know, a government official or whatever that can just you know, do this and you do it. Um, his authority carries that weight of command, but a husband is required to counsel his wife and never to command her to do anything against uh, her own will or to force her to do anything. Uh, she needs to be able to come to a point uh, where she can follow him in good conscience. So uh, being a husband requires a lot of patience, and we'll, we'll get into that more in a minute here. So the next phrase is, as is fitting in the Lord. Um, so this is God's design for the home. Uh, this is his created order. God made Adam and then Eve. And again, it's not an issue of equality, but of roles and offices in the home. Uh, so yeah, thinking through the wife and her submission, uh, I've heard it said that it's, it's similar to like a yieldedness. So it's true, you know, sometimes we only think about a marriage relationship and like the authority within it, you know, if there's a disagreement, who do we go with? And that's not a great way to think about marriage. <laughs> there will be disagreements, but the majority of the time, uh, hopefully there's a, a patient uh, leading from the husband um, in the right direction and the counsel of the wife is uh, a part of the husband's authority and decision making and uh, there's lots of communication and uh, being on board and on the same page uh, within that relationship. 
Uh, so again, a husband is not a general who can you know, command his wife to do something and punish her if she does not. The husband does not hold a tool of discipline. Jesus is uh, the discipline, and um, a husband has to respect that. Otherwise, it can quickly lead to bad authority and abusive authority. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, a husband carries weight in his authority. He can say, you know, as an as a end of the discussion, when it does come to those points, we are going to do this. And the wife is more morally obliged to follow him in that as she would even follow Christ. So, again, we're not talking about him leading her into sin or you know, doing something evil or whatever. It's the normal, the normative of a wife is to uh, not never say anything, but to uh, be one with her husband. There's a oneness of counsel and communion and discussion and, and following Jesus together, but also a submission uh, to the headship of her husband. Uh, so yeah, I meant to say this at the beginning, but I'm horrified to talk about all this. <laughs> so uh, if you have questions about uh, any of this and you don't want to ask it now, feel free to ask it later. And uh, if I'm ever way off, please, please let me know. So I think I'm... I, uh, I am doing it correctly, so I would, if I'm doing something wrong, please tell me. And if you ever need help with authority, let me know. I would love to help you as well. So that's a hard thing about being a pastor, is when you say stuff, people listen to you. And they should, but you've got to make sure that it's uh, the word and what God wants. So uh, please help me if I ever mess up. Okay. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Uh, so a way we can define the office of husband is to cultivate oneness by leading and loving his wife in the shared work of following Jesus. Uh, so again, the husband, as Ephesians describes, is to love his wife like Jesus loved the church. So it's a, it's a self-sacrificial headship not a dictatorship. Um, the responsibility of the home is placed on husbands. Um, so this is one that I've been trying to think through personally, is I think the home, in all its regards, I'm responsible for before the Lord. So I will give an account for everything that happens in my home uh, as a husband and father. Uh, my wife shares in that responsibility, but to a lesser degree as uh, my spouse and the one whom I'm one with. But I'm responsible for the, the vision and goal of the family. And so what does that mean in day-to-day -day life? It means when I get home from work or whatever and my kid is misbehaving, it's my responsibility to discipline him and, and help him. Uh, obey and follow Jesus. Uh, when the dishes need to be done or the carpet needs vacuumed, it's my responsibility. Now my wife is there dedicated to helping me with the responsibility of our family and our home, but I will give an account for how those things are, are taken. So the image of you know a modern man who just lays on the couch and drinks 
root beer and plays video games all day is not what God has in mind. <laughs> Headship requires responsibility and action and uh, serving one's family. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is uh, I think part of what he's referring to with the bitterness here is that when Jesus died for the church, he did it while the church was still sinful and we still sin against him. We still don't follow him. We still don't obey. And so there's a level of absorption that a husband has towards his wife that even when she sins against you, uh, we, we can take that and we can let love cover it and it doesn't need to be something that we're, we're bitter about, that we hold over her um, um, in different ways, but it's something that we can forgive her for and continue to love and lead even if... Uh, you know, whatever that thing is continues or whatever. Because I think from the example of how Jesus loves the church, uh, there's a lot of room for us to grow. And obviously that's really hard because we take offense uh, really easily as people and sin hurts. Uh, but that's something that uh, we can show our wives what Jesus is like by when they sin against us, loving them like Jesus loved the church. Okay. Uh, so the second word, husbands, love your wives. Uh, I think this is harder. We spend a lot of time thinking about how hard it is for a wife to submit to her husband is. I think the command for the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church is a harder calling. <laughs> when, when you zoom out and think about what that actually entails. So um, it's not that submission is easy. But it's often really hard to do the right thing um, as a leader. So I don't know if that makes sense. But, but it's especially hard to do it lovingly. <laughs> so headship is just is really hard, and it's a great uh, weight upon husbands. And it should be. And it's not something that we do out of fear, but there should be a sense of, uh, we read about in Revelation, Jesus, with eyes of fire, watching his church. Uh, he, he sees the seven churches in Asia, and he's watching them, and he's caring for them, and he's rebuking them, and he's calling them to repent. And there's the sense of his eyes on the church. Um, and I think husbands should feel that as they seek to fulfill their responsibilities to what the Lord has called them to, is I will give an account for how I love my wife today. I will give an account for how I lead my family. Um, all those things. And again, it's not a fear thing, but it's more of a, uh, you know, I want to please the Lord because he died for me and saved me. And so I will do these things because I love him. And then, yeah, the last part about don't be bitter. Um, it's easy. Uh, <laughs> I heard about, uh, or there's a, a story that's told where a wife like gives her husband silent treatment for a week, and at the end of the week, the husband's like, wow, we've been getting along really well. <laughs> this has been a great week for us. That type of thing. So, so when there's conflict in marriage, our responsibility as husbands is to, to make peace and reconcile that in a way that honors Jesus, and not to let that bitterness ride underneath and go unaddressed, uh, but to uh, work that out. And to do it in a loving way, and not a harsh way, uh, but to have uh, a loving help. So because it's Valentine's Day, I got some helps for husbands. 
So guys, remember that I'm a husband too, and we're all in this together, okay? <laughs> and please help me as I try to be a better husband. Uh, exercise your authority with a light hand. So thinking about command of counsel, uh, it should sound more like, uh, you know, let's, let's think about doing this instead of do this. So there, there's a harshness that can come into play with authority where in a loving way we can kind of back off from that and encourage and invite and uh, be patient as a wife is working on trusting the Lord and submitting to the leadership that we're giving. Um, exercise your authority through trust and relationship. So it's usually not a great idea to say, you know, wife, you need to follow me because Jesus says you need to. Uh, <laughs> it's just not helpful. There, there's truth in that, like that's what the word says, but it's not meant to be used as a tool of discipline to get your wife to, to follow you. Uh, we rather want to work on uh, having trust because your wife, who knows you better than anybody else, trusts that you're using your authority to help the family and help others flourish and not to please yourself. Uh, exercise your authority so your wife wants to submit to you, and uh, that always doesn't work out, but we should seek to be good uh, sub-authorities of Jesus and trustworthy so that our wives are excited to follow us. Uh, exercise your authority patiently in an understanding way. So scripture talks about this, uh, you know, um, living with your wife in an understanding way and being patient with where you think God wants you to lead your family and your marriage uh, uh, for her to come around to trusting the Lord and his direction with you. Uh, exercise your authority with respect for your wife, who is your equal. So because you have authority in your marriage doesn't mean that you're better than her or anything like that. You are equals before the Lord. Um, exercise your authority by quickly foregoing your rights. So just because God commands a wife to give something doesn't mean husbands have the right to take it. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, God commands a wife to respect her husband. So that doesn't mean that a husband can require respect of the wife. He has to help her learn to walk with Jesus with him and to learn that respect and uh, work through that. So those things are uh, from Lehman's book on authority, and uh, hopefully they're helpful. Uh, so yeah, we all fall short of this, so don't be discouraged. It's a process. Uh, Jeff Newman, Dr. Jeff Newman has said, your spouse is a part of God's rescue plan for your life. So your spouse knows you really well, and they're going to draw out the worst of you. <laughs> and that's great, because then we get to bring it to Jesus and repent of it and keep learning to love Jesus together. So uh, sin is hard and we need to deal with it, but if we change our perspective that God is using each other to make us more like him, that oneness that marriage is creating uh, can be super helpful for our walk with the Lord if we bring it to him. So try to have a good perspective on it. Okay, uh, honor him in your family. <laughs> We're going to make it, guys. we got 15 minutes. Uh, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. 
Um, <clears throat> so the sense of these verses is talking about adolescents who are still in the home. Uh, as children get older, there begins to be kind of a change of pace where at the beginning you're kind of bringing them along and showing them how the world works and you need to obey this and do these things. And then at some point as they get older, they begin to walk beside you and they start to make their own decisions with you. And then at some point they're out on their own and they're still asking for counsel, but the, the authority of command uh, at some point shifts to an authority of counsel. So a parent forever will have authority of counsel over their child, um, but the adult child will have much more freedom to make their decisions before the Lord as they get older. Uh, so yeah, Paul says, obey in all things. So he says all things. And this is super helpful for parents because sometimes uh, it's easy to let things go and not be consistent. But that is something that is very necessary for parenting is to have consistency. Uh, you will struggle with confusion uh, if you're not consistent in how you uh, enforce obedience with your children. So this doesn't mean that you're harsh. It doesn't mean that uh, you're vindictive. Uh, it just means that we require obedience of our children. So when I tell you to take out the trash, you take out the trash. And it's, you know, I'm not mad, but you must obey. Because you're, you're not accountable to me, you're accountable to God. So that's another uh, pitfall that I've fallen into and parents fall into is to, to have the authority end with me. So thinking that I'm God, that you need to obey me because I'm your dad, instead of you need to obey me because God uh, gave me as your authority. So we've got to guard against that uh, idea that I'm the final authority in your life because that's not helpful for your child because we're not always going to be there. When they're out on their own, they need to remember well, mom would want me to do this, but mom taught me that I'm under God first, and so I need to obey what God says, not just what mom says, because we're not always going to be there as parents. So require obedience of your children and do it lovingly. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's so easy to, to take things personally when a child doesn't obey what you say, but we have to remember that they're, they're disobeying God's authority, not who I am, and not take it personally, personally, but to, to help them learn to love Jesus as well. So obviously this gets easier if a child trusts in Christ and has the Spirit. They're then able to have God working that obedience in them. Um, but even when they're younger, uh, it's similar to Proverbs where, like, if you don't learn to obey authority, you will die. That's how the world works, right? There's laws of the road. There's laws of the state. If you step out of bounds of those, you get hit by a car. You go to prison. You, you know, all these things. And so uh, even when they're younger, they need to learn that they're not God, that God is God, and they're under God, even if they haven't trusted in Jesus yet. And that will ultimately help them to see their need for God and for Jesus' righteousness because they can't obey God on their own. It reveals their need for a savior. And then again, he points out, um, as is well-pleasing to the Lord. So again, the Lord is the focus of our children's obedience and submission. 
and they should begin to learn uh, to follow God and obey him as the authority of the world before they're even believers. Uh, so you want to be careful uh, with your children that you don't... Uh, there should be a break when they trust in Christ uh, of how you even talk to them. So that can be complicated. Um, but when you're, when you're disciplining and helping a child who hasn't trusted in Christ yet, you tell them, uh, hey, I know you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, but you need to trust him and he'll help you learn to obey and learn to love God like you should. And then a child who has trusted in Jesus, you say, I'm learning to love Jesus too. Let's learn to obey him together. And you kind of come alongside of them and encourage them to submit to God and his authority um, in that. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, children need to obey their parents. And that, that's really hard. But it's good and well-pleasing to the Lord. Uh, the other part of this is fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So this is a different word from parents in the verse before. So it seems to be specifically addressing fathers here, uh, not just the parent couple, but I think it can be applied uh, to mothers as well. So he instructs them not to provoke their children. And so uh, we can do that when we are confusing in our instruction, when we give them something that's not achievable or uh, something that they can do at the age they're at. Potentially, we do it when we're not consistent, when sometimes we require obedience and sometimes we don't. That can be really confusing to a child of, uh, you know, do I have to obey this time or is mom going to get mad and I need to obey? And that's another thing is the threshold at which you ask your child to obey. So does a child need to obey when mom's screaming or does a child need to obey when mom asks to take out the trash? You know, or do, does a child need to obey when, I'm not going to say it again, take out the trash. So if we, if we teach our child to obey God's authority over them, when we say that first time, it'll just be so much better. <laughs> and I think in every discipline situation, there's opportunity to point them to, for their need for Christ. Because their, their sin is being revealed, their rebellion against God's authority is being revealed, and they need to trust in Christ to be saved ultimately. Um, yeah, and so a child can become discouraged. And so we want to be careful we're not uh, being inconsistent or uh, unreasonable in our requests of our children. So the opposite of that would be instead of provoking them, we want to be helpful, we want to be encouraging. We want to come alongside of them and help them in what they're doing and build them up rather than tear them down. And obviously, if they, if they obey, we encourage them in that to continue uh, to do that as it is pleasing to the Lord. Um, we talked about that. So yeah, parents do have an authority of command, and they have a built-in tool of discipline, the rod. Uh, so... There's obviously ways that that can turn into abuse, but the rod used in wisdom and self-control is God's way of helping a child leave behind foolishness and become wise. 
That's how Proverbs talks about it. So if you have more questions about uh, what that looks like, uh, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, yeah, so to keep in mind as parents, remember that we're not God. We have derived authority from God, and they ultimately uh, are accountable to him. So we don't take things personally. We don't get vindictive when they don't listen to us. Uh, we keep our position of authority in mind all the time. Um, and then also, I don't know if this is a, more of a modern thing, but sometimes it's, we see the child as either like fulfilling our dreams or failing like we did, and we kind of see ourselves in the child, and we don't want to discipline ourselves in the child. We want to love the child that's in front of us. Um, so that, that can even work across children. So I'm not disciplining this child thinking of this children. I need to care for this child's soul while he's the one in front of me. Um, so it's just helpful to keep in mind uh, because it's easy to even see something that maybe you did as a child and punish your child more strictly because you hate that thing in yourself or whatever it might be, um, but, to, but to care well for that child. And we don't ultimately own our children. God owns our children. And so we can trust him with our mistakes and with what he's asked us to do and uh, walk forward by faith. So steps to take for parents who are seeking to do well in parenting is, like Proverbs said, is to fear the Lord and to get wisdom ourselves. So we want to know the word. We want to be wise. We want to make sure we're parenting and raising our children according to what God says not whatever new book is out or whatever. Those can be helpful, but we want to start with the word and then use your authority for their good and never for your own selfish convenience or gain. So children pick up on this when we use our children to get things done for ourselves. Um, I think obviously they're in the home and they have responsibility and they need to help with things, but we got to be careful of our motive that we're not selfishly using them to make our lives easier, um, but doing it for their good and to please the Lord. Uh, we should love and affirm our children as God made them. So we shouldn't try to change their personality into what we think they should be. Uh, there's a difference between how God made them, their, their personality within them, and sin. So sin needs to be disciplined. Their personality, we should not uh, infringe on or change. Um, I think there's room to grow. So you think of like someone who doesn't love to talk with others or meet people. There's room to grow in that, but that person will always have that personality and we shouldn't try to turn them into an extrovert or, or whatever. So we want to help our children grow within who they are and not make them somebody else. That's really helpful. Um, and then, yeah, love them most by pointing them to Jesus uh, every day, and especially every time we discipline them and uh, seek to help them keep learning to love Jesus. And I think it's helpful, uh, like Dell brought up, to have an appeals process and to discuss the, the God-ordained authority in your house. So tell them how God designed your family to work husband and wife, parents, children, and their responsibility in that before God. 
and then how maybe if a parent makes a decision and we don't have information that might change that decision or uh, you know whatever it might be they're welcome to appeal and to provide more information or to ask that we do something different uh, any thoughts on children or parenting I'm clearly not the expert. I'm in the middle of it, trying to figure it out. Yeah, Melissa. I, I just want to add one thought, especially, I guess, at the younger age, is mm -hmm. being careful not to discipline for childishness as opposed yeah. to sin. You know, like spilling their water right. because they're just, their hands are, you know, right to be able to hold the cup, and so they spill it, and then they get disciplined, as opposed to you told them not to climb on the table, and they climb on the table and spill the water. Then that's a discipline. So I think sometimes we get hung up on the childish things that they do that need to be more guided or yeah. taught as opposed to disciplined in those areas. Right. That's really good. And even with, uh, with childishness or silliness, you know, it's not always like you did something that's wrong, I'm going to discipline you. There can be training and redirection and then down the road when they know that it's wrong and they're doing it on purpose, uh, that's where a lot of that corrective discipline comes in and the, the training has already taken place. So it's good. Yeah, Del. The thing I thought of was back on the marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, while the husband is to be the leader, they are equal. And right. we need to have good communication. I learned early on that I thought, because I was concerned about being a leader. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, it didn't take too long, and there's something that needed to be decided, it seemed like. So I made a decision, and my lovely wife was concerned that there's something I may not have taken into account. Sure. I have to tell you, it's happened many times. Yep. As it's, in fact, I think of one recently where, uh, and so what happened is she came to me and said, Tom, I'm really concerned about this, and you have to process that. but. And we'll have to celebrate 50 years this year. That's awesome. And I cannot think of one instance where she's come to me like that where I've regretted reconsidering what we did. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't, there was regret. Um, Lord's given them um, perspectives that we don't have that we right. need. And I. <laughs> This is a poor, probably a poor example, but this last weekend there was the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And one of the players got really upset with the coach and lost it and went and almost knocked him over. And the press has tried to make a big deal of that. But I think they really modeled what we need to have because the player immediately identified he'd gone too far. <laughs> he apologized, the coach, actually end up commending him because of his <laughs> enthusiasm. They thought the best of one another, and they, they found a way to resolve rather than to make it what it could have easily been. That's awesome. That's a important. I, I hate to use a football illustration in this context, but no. I think that was a graphic illustration of right. someone over, overreacting in how you deal with that successfully. Right. And that's uncommon for that to actually take place in real forgiveness and resolution to be made. Yep. Good.
Okay, if you have more thoughts about that, let me know. We're going to give you the rest of the blanks here. No. I, or, yep, it's all me. <laughs> so, uh, thinking about slavery, uh, there's a distinction between slave and servant um, as many of our translations translate things as servant. So they're two different words. Um, so oftentimes when the Bible uses, or when we see in our translation the term servant, uh, it's actually the word slave. So there's a connotation that's different with that. A servant provides service for someone. They may or not may not be a slave, but a slave belongs to somebody. And so that's really what uh, is in view here. And what's to come to mind is not American slavery in all its awfulness, but to think about what slavery was in first century Rome. So the term servant actually comes from uh, the word to save because it's from generals who would conquer a people and instead of killing them all, he'd take them as slaves and put them to work for him. And he would own them, but they would live. Um, so it was absolute ownership, but many slaves preferred to be slaves because they were able to advance in society much faster, attaching themselves to a master who had you know, much more influence and money than they did. Uh, the Jews were considered God's slaves because he freed them from slavery in Egypt. So Leviticus 25, 42 through 43 talks about that. In the Roman Empire, uh, the slave to free person ratio was about one to five. So if the uh, Colossae church had 200 members, like our church does, 40 of them would have been slaves. So 40 of our people would be slaves if we lived in that culture. So he's addressing slaves and masters in this text, which would have been you know, about 20% of the congregation that he's addressing here. Um, and then what happens in the New Testament and what happens here is the, the idea of master and slave is utilized to describe our relationship to Jesus. We're now his slaves. We've been bought at a price. He owns us. And so that's what he walks through here. Um, so we'll just read through that together. Uh, in verse 22, Bond servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So what's fun to think about is the master word used in chapter 4, verse 1, is the same as Lord used through all that text. So he's pointing to, you have a Lord, and Jesus is your Lord, and uh, you need to work for him, is kind of the idea. Um, so think about that in terms of pretty much everything we do in life. Jesus is our Lord, we serve him, we do whatever roles or offices or responsibilities he gives us because he's our master and we want to follow him. The one fun side note is the book of Philemon was delivered at the same time as the book of Colossians to the church in Colossae. So Philemon was uh, 
he owned the home that the church was meeting in. And he owned the slave Onesimus that Paul had led to faith in Christ um, in prison. And now he's sending Onesimus back and saying, treat Onesimus as a brother and don't punish him. And I'll actually pay anything that's owed to you. So that's your last blank there is Philemon. And uh, there's a little summary of it there. So what Jesus has done in saving the church has helped us reorient how we think about relationships and authority and all of those things. And now we can do it all for the Lord because he saved us and he's the one uh, that judges us and our authorities as we trust him. Okay. Thank you guys. Hopefully that was helpful. And uh, there's some application for you to read through on your own sometime. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.